This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Well, this morning we're continuing our series, Living and Leading. We're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Timothy, and we're picking up today where we left off last week in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through to 15. And before we read the verses, I want us to take a little bit of a step back and have a look at the context to which these verses are written. Because if we're going to understand what this letter means, then we have to understand the context in which it was written. This is an important principle for whenever we come to study the Bible, whenever we come to approach Scripture, that we understand first the context in which it was written in order to understand what is it saying to us in our context today. And when we don't do that, when we don't read Scripture first in the context it was written, then we, find our, we can find ourselves drawing conclusions that the writer never intended to make and missing the true meaning of the text. So this morning I want us to take a step back to look at the context and the culture so that we can grasp what the writer was really saying. So first of all, this letter is written from Paul. We know this from chapter 1. Paul is a significant leader in the early church. Thirteen books of the New Testament are considered to be written by him. And he writes to Timothy. Timothy is Paul's protege. He's a leader alongside Paul, learning from Paul in the early church. And it's written concerning the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus had a particular problem. And the particular problem was that some of the people who were teaching within the church were teaching what was called false doctrines. It was false teaching. It was false beliefs. And they were leading the believers astray. That was the issue within the church. But outside of the church, Ephesus was a port city. It was situated, it is situated on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And as a port city, it attracted many visitors and much trade. Culturally, it was predominantly Greek, but it had a strong Jewish community, and it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. So this church is situated in this city that has this clash of strong cultures. And if all of that wasn't challenge enough, Ephesus was also the center of cult worship to a Greek false goddess called Artemis, who was known to the Romans as Diana. And the temple of Artemis dominated the landscape of Ephesus. It was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It took 120 years to build. And of the, even in the, just the entrance itself consisted of, of over 100 marble columns, each five stories high. And it was this that dominated the landscape of Ephesus. Within the temple, it, there were sexual practices that were incorporated into the worship of Artemis, this false goddess, who was served by three different grades of priestesses. Kroger and Kroger describe Ephesus as a bastion of feminine supremacy in religion, as the institution for feminine supremacy in religion. 
And so it's into this context and these challenges that Paul writes these words. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, popular amongst Roman culture, particularly with the middle class, were these incredibly intricate hairstyles. They were considered works of art, and they consisted of braids that were formed high on the top of a head. And into the braids were woven gold and pearls. They were considered works of art, and they communicated something. They communicated a certain status. They communicated superiority. They communicated extravagance and opulence. Not only that, attractive clothes and elaborate jewelry insinuated sexual promiscuity. On top of that, Rome had passed laws legislating what respectable women were to wear and what prostitutes and adulterers were to wear. And yet there was a gender and sexual revolution going on in a lot of Roman cities, which meant that these laws of dress codes were not being adhered to. And so it's into that context, that context where elaborate hairstyles communicated superior status, where expensive clothes suggested sexual promiscuity, and where this once clear-cut divisions between the appearance of the respectable women and the appearance of prostitutes are now beginning to be blurred, that Paul says to the church in Ephesus, I want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. This is not a universal banning of gold or pearls. It's not a restriction on hair and clothing, but Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus to understand that appearance can communicate a value system which undermines the message. That appearance can communicate a value system that undermines the message. And for Paul, he is passionate about this message. He realizes that the message of Jesus is precious, that it is life-giving. So if in this context, the Christian women are wearing clothes that suggest they are sexually promiscuous, then they could be misunderstood more as followers of Artemis than followers of Jesus. That the call to holiness could be undermined by the value system that the appearance of certain clothes communicates. Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus to understand that appearance can distract from the worship of God. He says, I want the women to dress with modesty and decency. Modesty meaning not excessive. Decently appropriate to the situation. Appropriate to the situation. Paul is instructing that when we gather together, 
to worship the Most High God, that none of us should wear what distracts someone from the worship of God. The God who in chapter 1, Paul describes as the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, our Savior and our hope. That our appearance should distract no one from that. That our dress is not excessive, but appropriate to the situation. Modest and decent. And Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus to understand that appearance can create segregation. That appearance can create segregation. The Roman, Greek and Jewish culture were highly segregated on gender and social class amongst other things. And so there would have been people converting to Christianity in the early church that had lived for decades believing that inequality was the norm. Believing that one's gender or social class or ethnicity determined one's value or rights or ability. So here the writer seems to be addressing the appearance of things that would highlight that segregation, the expensive and excessive items that would indicate status, hierarchy, superiority, stressing the revolutionary truth that Paul writes to the church in Galatia, that now there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. That inequality has no place here, that it is not the norm, it is not acceptable, and here it has no place. And so the writer continues in verse, 12, in verse 11. He writes, a woman should learn in quietness and submission. Now, if we consider, again, the context, we see that he is continuing on this theme of equality when he writes these revolutionary words that a woman should learn. You see, in Roman culture, husbands had absolute power over their wives. When a baby boy was born, he was given a name. When a baby girl was born, she wasn't given her own name, but a feminine derivative of her father's name. And it was common for women to be killed by family members as punishment. Within Greek culture, Greek law viewed women as inferior and subordinate to men. They had no more legal rights than a slave. They were unable to own property, or control finances. And the education was limited to what they were deemed to need to know, which often revolved around the home. They weren't allowed to eat in the same room as men. And amongst the quotes that represent the Greek view towards women, Socrates wrote, the male sex is far better than the female. Being born a woman is divine punishment since women are halfway between a man and an animal. This is the context into which Paul writes these revolutionary words. Within Jewish culture, women were marginalized in the synagogue. They were segregated from the men, and the studying of scripture was only for boys. 
Josephus, who wrote at the time, a Jewish historian who wrote at the time of Jesus, wrote that women are inferior to men in every way. And there was a common prayer prayed by Jewish men that said, Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I am not a slave. Thank you, God, that I am not a woman. And it's into this context, into this city, where these three cultures coexist, that Paul writes these liberating, revolutionary words that a woman should learn. A woman should learn. Can you imagine being a little Jewish girl? Can you imagine growing up? Can you imagine seeing the boys go off to do the studying? Can you imagine feeling like, I feel like there's something in my heart that that wants to be involved in that. And yet I'm told that there's something about me that it was out of my control that I did not choose that restricts me from that. And then beginning to accept the lie. Well, that's just how it is. Hearing it so many times. That's just how it is. Can you imagine the liberation when you read those words, when you hear those words, when you see it in practice, that a woman should learn. It is incredible. And it is countercultural to the extreme, and yet completely consistent with the life of Jesus. Of Jesus who, in John chapter 4, we see him having a conversation, and it is the longest recorded conversation in the Gospels. And it is a theological discussion, and it is with a woman. And it is in public, because a woman should learn. And Jesus, who in Luke chapter 10 commends Mary for sitting at his feet. When Mary's sister Martha is flapping about the housework, he commends Mary for sitting at his feet. Not just because she wanted to spend time with him, but to sit at his feet as a teacher, as a rabbi, was the posture of a disciple. It was the posture of a learner. Because a woman should learn. And then the second part of the verse answers a little bit of the how. The writer is giving some guidance to the women who have not had this freedom before of how this should be done. How learning, whether you are male or female, how learning should take place. This isn't how the women should learn. This is how people should learn. And so he says in quietness and in full submission. And the quietness is less about volume and more about attitude, about the attitude and the posture of a learner. And the original word used here is esousia, which means peaceful or quiet, a listening attitude, paying studious attention. And it is used elsewhere to direct men, and both men and women, that this is the attitude, this is the posture of a learner. He directs it to women here because this whole passage is directed to women. He's giving the how of what he has just liberated them to do. He points to a humility of heart that is necessary for learning. And then he says in full submission, full submission to the one teaching and to the God who gives wisdom 
and understanding. This is how teaching, this is how learning, male or female, this is how learning should take place. Then he goes on in verse 12, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. I do not permit a woman to teach. And yet here I am. (laughs) This could be awkward. (laughs) Unless, of course, we take a step back and we consider the context into which these words were written. And of the false teachers that Paul refers to in chapter 1, it's argued that some, or perhaps particularly one, was a woman. And this passage has been described as a corrective passage. This this letter was not told, like other letters that are written to, to churches, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Rome, this letter was not told to be circulated around the churches. This, this passage has been described as a corrective passage that was speaking into a particular situation, in a particular time, and a particular place. And again, considering the context, we have to remember that this letter was not written in English. That this letter was written in another language that has been translated into English. And sometimes when you hold those two languages up together, they don't totally correlate. So the words don't, don't directly translate. So of these words, Alan Hewitt writes, we see that there is no imperative command in this verse. Rather, it is written in the present tense. It is written in the present tense to a particular situation in a particular time and a particular place and actually means, I do not permit women to teach now or I am not permitting. He writes, it is not a rule for all time have to consider the context, the literary context, the cultural context, the geographical context to which these verses were written. Again, completely consistent with the life of Jesus and the teaching of Paul. The life of Jesus who on that glorious resurrection morning when it was the women who came to the tomb, when it was the women who came to discover that he had indeed risen from the dead, didn't say, whoa, 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 you wait here. Wait for the men to come. It's the men that need to go and teach and tell them that that I'm alive, but but release them. Did not consider their gender to uh, restrict them or, or disqualify them from being the first to say Jesus is risen. It's the message we've been preaching for 2,000 years. And it was women who first spread that message, who first preached the message of salvation. And of the teaching of Paul, Paul who commends Phoebe as a female deaconess, Paul who commends Junia as a female apostle who would have taught amongst the early church. This passage is written in the present tense, and it is not a rule for all time. Then it goes on to say, or to have authority over a man. And 26 times in seven letters, Paul talks about authority, the majority of which come from the Greek word exousia. Exousia. But here it's a different word with a very different significant connotation. It's the word authentia, which means to dominate to control, 
to control in a domineering manner. And in Greek literature, it had horrendously, grotesquely violent connotations. So Paul says, I do not permit the women to treat the men like this, to dominate, to control. I don't permit violence and aggression. You see, the cult of the false Greek goddess Artemis taught the superiority of women and practiced dominance over men, which included sexual domination incorporated into temple worship. And so Paul redresses the balance, and he condemns the behavior. And as one who says, now there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, he challenges the gender inequality. And this isn't about women not having leadership or influence or position in the lives of men, but it's about an ungodly practice that is unacceptable for any human being to exercise over any other. And if Paul was writing to the church today, if Paul was writing to the church today, I think he would have something to say about the report that one in three women are beaten, coerced into sex, or abused in their lifetime in this world. One in three. One, two, three. If Paul was writing to the church today, he would have something to say that, about the fact that more girls have been killed in the last 50 years simply because they were girls than men were killed in all the battles of the 20th century neither of which are okay. If Paul was writing to the church today, he would have something to say, and as the followers of Jesus, so should we. Because the mission of Jesus is not just that what goes on out there doesn't pollute us in here, but that the church, that through the church, the kingdom of God would be extended across the world. That the rule and the reign and the royalty of King Jesus would be extended across the world. The place where inequality has no place. Where inequality is not the norm. You see, the church needs to challenge culture. It needs to shape society. It needs to lead the way. But unfortunately, at times in history and in places today, this passage is read out of context and used to justify limiting women in leadership and teaching and in ministry inside the church and in wider society. That is not consistent with the life of Jesus. It is not consistent with the teaching of Paul, and it is not consistent with the wider biblical narrative. You see, leadership is not male. Leadership is not female. Leadership has no gender. It is about anointing and gifting and calling and teaching. And when we consider that, we, when we restrict the anointing and the call and the gift of God, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. The men suffer. The women suffer. The church suffers. And when the church is not at her best, then our world suffers. That is why this is important. 
And so Paul goes on in 13 and 14 to say, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, within the culture of Ephesus, there was a prevalent teaching that life began in a woman. And her name was Sibel. And that sin originated with man. And so in line with the Genesis account that describes Adam being man, created first, and Eve, woman, created second, Paul is addressing this false teaching that was pervading the culture and perpetuating the mistreatment of men. But unfortunately, what has happened sometimes, and even today, is we we translate this to infer superiority. But nowhere else in the New Testament does first indicate superiority, only sequence. That because Adam came first, Paul is saying, it doesn't indicate superiority, but only sequence. Again, the writer is not creating a hierarchy of men over women, but he's redressing the gender imbalance in the city, which was elevating women over men. And then finally, in verse 15, it says, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This verse has been described as one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. And if again we consider the context, the context of the teaching of Paul, the writer of this letter, We can rule out the idea that an individual woman receives eternal salvation through the process of childbirth. Because throughout Paul's letter, he passionately, passionately writes that it is by grace you have been saved. That salvation comes through faith alone. And so that is definitely not what Paul is saying. And yet this verse has been described as one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. And in the original wording, the language seems to shift between the singular and the plural. Between the singular and the plural. It seems to be talking about childbirth and yet about a very specific birth. If you were pregnant at the time that this letter letter was written then you had a 50-50 chance of surviving pregnancy and childbirth. And so within the city of Ephesus, it was said that if you bring an offering, and if you bring a sacrifice to Artemis, then she will save you through childbirth. That she will keep you safe through childbearing. That if you put your trust in Artemis, you will be kept safe. That if you bring your offering and your sacrifice to Artemis, that you will be kept safe. That if you pledge your allegiance to Artemis, then it will go well with you. To Artemis, the one who presides over the domination of men. The one who presides over the sexual abuse of women. Who condones and perpetuates gender inequality. Put your trust in her. It was said, and she will keep you safe. 
And yet what Paul does, and I wonder if the band could come to help us as we draw to a close this morning. What Paul does is he points to the evidence of a life that puts its trust not in Artemis, but in Jesus the Christ. And he says, if they continue in faith and in love and holiness with propriety. He says, it isn't Artemis that keeps you safe. Don't put your trust in Artemis. Don't sacrifice yourself. Don't offer yourself to Artemis. Don't pledge your allegiance to Artemis. Artemis is not in charge. Artemis does not have the power. She is not God. It's Jesus. And very clearly, and yet subtly, because Paul was not popular in Ephesus, because as the church grew, the businesses that were profiting from immorality declined. So very subtly, and yet clearly, Paul says, it's not about Artemis, it is Jesus who watches over you. Put your trust in Jesus. Offer yourself to Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Jesus the Christ, God made man. And as the language shifts from the plural to the singular, it seems that the writer is referring to a very specific birth, to a very special birth, to the birth that has been celebrated across the world for 2,000 years, the birth of Jesus the Christ, when God became man, when God put on flesh. And it's through that childbirth to a first-time mother, a first-time teenage mother in the Middle East, that salvation was delivered into the world. That through childbirth, through that childbirth, that all men, all women, that all people will be saved. Paul is referring to a very specific childbirth. That childbirth of Jesus the Christ, who through his life and his death and his resurrection saves us from separation from God, from the power of sin and death, and restores and reconciles us into the relationship with God that he created us for. That will save you. And that childbirth sets into motion the restoration of all things, begins to restore all things, including this beautiful picture of gender equality that we see in the early chapters of Genesis. There we see that God made male and female in their image, that this picture of equality and unity, both male and female together in complete equality would represent him. That is why this is important. That is why this matters. That is why gender equality is important because male and female were created in the image of God. 
And there is no hierarchy or superiority in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. That is why this matters. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to liberate women from the restrictions that society had shackled them with. And yet what we have done in the years since is begin to put some of them back on. That is why this matters. You don't have to watch the news for long to see that our world needs a church that is at the top of its game. That our world needs a fully functioning church where both men and women, regardless of gender, based on anointing and calling and gifting and training, are released into ministry and teaching and leadership within the church and outside of the church. That is why this matters. A church that challenges the culture. A church that shapes society. A church that leads the way. A church that partners with God in his plan of restoration for all things. That is why this matters. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.